Welcome to Juilliard's Everything Arts Related in and Around Austin. Today I'm chatting with Al Petrelli from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He's a guitarist and their music director, and he's also one of the core members. He's been there since the beginning, 25 years ago. And he's got a unique perspective on why the TSO has stood the test of time. Al Petrelli, I am so excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for making time. Oh, my pleasure. And how, first and foremost, uh, everybody there healthy, safe? You guys okay? The family good? Yes. Thank you so much for asking. I was going to do a check-in with you as well, not only for that, but also because it was a full moon last night, and we all know how that can uh, kind of push and pull. So how are you, and how are yours? Uh, everybody's good, thank you. Uh, I mean, I really have nothing to complain about, you know, compared to, you know, families all over America, you know, who suffered such horrible loss and tragedy. Uh, my wife, the kids are all good and healthy. You know, school's a little different for the girls, but you know, I'll take different right now. I know, truly. I mean, it's been such an extraordinary journey. We couldn't have imagined all of the things that were going to happen to us. And I think now that's even the reason why everything is so extra special, the things that we wanted to do. Um, and I think the Trans-Siberian Orchestra has always been extra special, but in my imagination, this tour it's an extraordinary moment, I think, for people to be able to get back in the theater um, and to be able to hear live music again. And I can only imagine what it's like for you, because I, I would think performers, you know, that not that where you come alive? Isn't that what feeds your soul? So I imagine it's been so tough for you to deal with everything else and then not performing on top of that. Am I right? Yeah. You know, it, it's not a job. It's not. I mean, this is who we are. I'll speak for everybody in the organization. But personally, this is I, I've been dreaming about this one thing since I was a baby, literally since 1964, when I seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You know, I had my granddaddy's guitar on my lap and was making believe I was Paul McCartney. I've been you know, dreaming about one thing and one thing, much to my parents' chagrin. But I've been only wanting to do this one thing my whole life. And it's not that I ever took it for granted, but, you know, for 25 years, you know, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra from its birth and inception until where it is today it has been everything to me. And I just assumed that nothing would ever happen to Christmas. And if we did a good job the next year, maybe you guys will invite us back. and We'll do another great tour. Uh, nobody <clears throat> like you had just said earlier, excuse me. You couldn't invite. This is like just a bad horror novel. You know what happened to everybody last year, you know. Uh, so to, to lose a tour and to now have it back in my hands, you know, once you have something back, you love it and you cherish it and you protect it that much more. So I, I feel like a caged animal. You know, I just can't wait to get back to it and do what I love more than anything. And, you know, to come back down to Austin, you know, so many years, so many memories, so many friends down that way, you know, to walk into the Frank Irwin Center and just know, OK, we're back. We're cool. You know, this is all good. You know, emotionally, it's going to be probably, well, absolutely like the most incredible tour we've ever done and when you think about that it is our 25th anniversary this year it's it's going to be over the top special yeah that's quite right what is it like to be part of something that has thrived over 25 years do you think back to the early days could you have imagined when paul o'neill presented this idea that that this is what it would have become never in a million years could i have dreamt this up i mean listen as a musician you know i want to make a couple good records do some good tours and that's usually the life expectancy. And, you know, I would have been okay with that. Um, the fact that in 19, early 96, you know, Paul asked me to get involved with this. And I, I watched this thing open its eyes, figuratively speaking, for the first time. And we did, uh, we sold, I don't know, a couple million copies of Christmas Eve and other stories. And then in 98, we recorded The Christmas Attic. 
Sold a couple million copies of that. I was like, this is awesome. I feel like I'm in like the steely day of Christmas. All we do is record. We don't have to tour or anything. All right. And then in 99, uh, somebody dared Paul to do a show. And the last thing you ever do is dare Paul Neal to do anything because he's going to pull it off and figure a way out. Yeah. And 99, we did our first bunch of shows. I think it was seven or eight cities. We had, we had a, a 24-foot box truck, two buses, and a fog machine. We thought we were the coolest thing ever, you know? And last year, or excuse me, two years ago when I left uh, the Allstate Arena in Chicago after the last show, there was 21 tractor trails and 12 buses and 85 of our own crew in the parking lot just saying goodbye to each other. And, and it's kind of like watching your children grow up and, and exceed all your expectations. So I, I never thought I'd be having this conversation, you know, a quarter of a century, literally later. You know, and the fact that we've become part of people's holiday tradition and they invite us into their homes, our music is being played from Thanksgiving to January in people's living rooms. You know, I've heard a thousand times, you know, it's not the holidays till you guys run through town. That's something even beyond, you know, uh, the longevity we've had that I never saw either. For somebody who's never uh, been to see the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, can you talk a little bit about what to expect? And I'm also curious how the evolution of, I guess, the interactive experience came along because it's not like it wasn't set that way from day one or maybe was it in paul's big brain i'm sure it was i was you know i was kind of hanging on for dear life in the beginning <laughs> you know I, when you think about when he first told me again going back to 99 you know he said okay listen we're going to do a tour i'm like how are we going to do a tour dude you had like a children's choir a gospel choir a full orchestra you had 10 or 11 different lead singers in this i mean and, you know he goes, we'll figure out a way to do it. And we went into rehearsal again. There was no expectations. You know, this is all brand new. You know, so we kind of put our heads together and, you know, followed Paul. He was like, whatever you, you want to do, boss, I got you. And again, it was seven or eight cities, uh, minimal production. The scariest part was I didn't know who was going to show up to these shows. You know, like, I know we sold a bunch of records, but who, I mean, these shows literally sold out in minutes. And I said, who's coming? This is going to be interesting. And I remember it was opening night at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. I was like, you know, put the tuxedo jacket on, put my Les Paul around my neck. You know, I was like, all right, I'm comfortable like this. We're good. And the house lights went down. The curtain came up and I had nearly had a heart attack because right in front of me was like this older couple, like maybe in their 70s, like very well dressed, you know, like those crochet, uh, crocheted reindeer sweaters people wear. Yeah. You know, but next to them was a dude wearing a Slayer hoodie. <laughs> Uh-oh. A little mind-blowing. You think? <laughs> and it was the kind of thing, you know, so I don't know, you know, do we turn down? Do we turn up? I, so I just put my head down and played the beginning right through the whole show to the end and looked up. And it was an overwhelming standing ovation, like to the point where me and uh, the bass player, Johnny Lee Middleton, we walked off the front of the stage just to thank these people because we could not believe the reaction that we got. Wow. And, you know, they fell in love with Paul's story, the poetry, the narration. And we just knew that this was incredible. Is that what so, appeals to everyone from, say, 7 to 77? Do you think it's the story? Absolutely. I, I think, listen, with children, I think that they're just kind of put back on their heels with the, the scope and the magnitude of the production. And, you know, again, when I was a baby watching the Beatles on, you know, the little black and white TV with the rabbit ear antennas when I was a kid, you know, I didn't know what the Beatles were doing. I just knew that this is magic to me, you know. But certainly I'm going to agree with you and say that, you know, anybody who's listening to the story and pays attention to it, they've made the story their own. Because when Paul wrote it in the late 95 and early 96, you know, this is 25 years ago. So I was like 34, 35 years old, whatever I was back then. 
And the songs and the story meant a lot to me then. As I got older, it became more poignant to me because at the center of his work is basically, you know, a father missing his runaway daughter. His teenage daughter ran away from home. They got in some sort of fight. He didn't remember why. She didn't remember why. She's scared. She wants to go home. He wants his baby girl home. It's Christmas Eve. You know, and when I play songs from the album, you know, my babies are now all grown up and two of them are in the armed forces. So there's nights where I get a lump in my throat as well, especially we're doing a song, you know, called Ornament and the, and the father's pr screaming to the heavens, just bring my baby girl home. You know, uh, I feel like that about my kids, mm. you know, so and I think that everybody in the audience relates to that same sentiment because everybody Everybody misses somebody, especially around the holidays. And, you know, I, I try to compare it to or just say that there's always an empty seat at the dining room table for whatever reason. And especially what we've all been through last year. You know, unfortunately, there's so many more empty chairs, you know. And I think that once people realize that you're not alone in that thought, it doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't take the fear away. Or the, but at least you're not alone, you know. And you can know that everybody in that audience shares that same sentiment. And it's some, somehow cathartic. I think that's right. I think that's right, because I think that pain is very isolating. So I think for, yeah, and you're right, there are more, going to be more empty chairs. And for some, the first time those chairs have ever been empty. And that is, yeah. of course, the hardest. Um, and you bring up, you know, the extraordinary connection that people have to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra's music in particular. Uh, there's a deep, deep connection. It's it's like coming home, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, music's wonderful and, and people are fans of all kinds of music. But there is something extra special about what you've put together with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, what you communicate to your audience, what your audience feels in the moment, because 25 years doesn't just happen on a fluke, you know? No, no, ma'am, it doesn't. And, you know, it's a, you just touched on something really interesting. You know, my wife, she's always yelling at me. Why do you keep watching the same John Wayne movie? I'm like, well, first of all, it's on TV, and I just so happen to like it. And she actually ended up reading an article in a psychological, uh, psychology magazine that people do that because you're safe, you're, it's familiar, and there's a sense of comfort to it. You know, like I, I know the dialogue, I know the ending, I know what's going to happen, but I'll just be transfixed on the TV because there's something that makes me feel safe watching John Wayne on the big screen. Okay, and I think a lot of folks who have been coming to see us year after year after year, and I affectionately refer to them as our repeat offenders. This is familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's familiar to them. It's safe to them. They know the ending of the story, if you will. You know, and there's, uh, and they just, there's a calming effect that you know what you to expect. Obviously, it's going to look different. We're going to do some different songs. We're always going to change it up a little bit. But traditions are traditions for a reason. You know, when I was a kid, it was, I don't know, Charlie Brown and, and um, uh, uh, Miracle on 34th Street. And, and, you know, the Yule Log when I was a kid, they had like a videotape of like somebody's fireplace for three and a half hours, you know, playing Christmas songs. But that's what you did. And that's when I know, OK, it's Christmas and I feel OK here. So maybe it's a little bit of that, too. I think that's true. It takes the, there's no stress involved in it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you want to share about this show in particular? I mean, without giving anything away, is there anything that you want to share about um, maybe a little sneak peek of what people can expect? I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> and I'm a, I, you listen, uh, musically, we're going to do um, a bunch of songs we've never done before. You know, the front of the show is going to be different musically. The, the back half of the show, when we blow everything up, is going to be different musically. But I don't get to see the production until I get to the production rehearsal in Omaha, Nebraska in a couple of weeks. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's really going to be a surprise to me. And I immediately turn into a 15-year-old kid every time I walk into that arena. 
like when I grew up on Long Island and sneaking into Nassau Coliseum, you know, trying to like, get a peek at the Allman Brothers or Aerosmith or Skinner or whatever it was, and I, they'd be wheeling the cases off the trucks, and then I get chased out by the cops as normal. You know, now I don't get chased out of the arena, you know, but I still <laughs> turn into that 15-year-old, you know, with the amount of stuff that's piled on the floor and the, the crew, you know, the, the crew's got about 30 days or so to set it up for the first show, and it's going to be an amazing first show. And then I always, you know, say, well, yeah, but they got six hours to set it up for the next show. Now, it might be our second show, but it's that community's first show. And every show is going to be a first show. It's going to be a perfect first show. Uh, so whatever they have in store for us, let's get, you know, we'll be surprised together. But uh, I promise you that regard, regardless of production and all that, emotionally, it's going to be an overwhelming experience this year in particular. Yeah, I think um, I think for you, I think for the audience as well. And I love you're talking about a perfect show because for everyone, that is their special moment, yeah. you know. And so the fact that you guys, are, you, you know, that you're consciously going into it saying this is what we want to deliver, um, that just feels like a warm hug. Well, thank you for saying that because, you know, Paul O'Neill, again, you know, my best friend, my brother, you know, my boss, my partner in crime. He always looked at things that way, you know, you know, especially, you know, back in the day, if we'd be touring for, let's say, eight, nine, ten months in a row, a lot of people like ah, the end of the tour is getting sloppy, it's getting stale. Yeah, but not for the folks in the audience, dude. You know, it's their first show. So right. You know? So for us, from the downbeat on, uh, I think, November the 17th, OK, until the very last note we play uh, on December the 30th, every show and sometimes we're doing two, two a day. It's a first show for that audience member, and they're going to be treated as such. And to be honest with you, every time I put that guitar around my neck and the house lights go down again, that 15-year-old comes out and is like, this is the greatest day ever. Oh, that is awesome. So let's talk, Al, about your instrument a little bit, because I think a lot of people um, have new respect for what it means to master the guitar. Lots of people tried to learn or maybe still trying to learn, um, got started in quarantine. And it's such a difficult instrument mm -hmm. to get good at. So here you are, a master of guitar. You're, you've just got mad skills. It's a thing to watch you play. And I'm wondering, what is that like? What does that feel like? Or do you find moments where you're still learning and exploring with your instrument, even today? Every day I learn something. I'll never master it, you know. The, the, I'm on that journey, too. You know, mm -hmm. The journey's been a lot of fun. I, I like to try to get better every day. Uh, I like to learn something new every day. Uh, as long as there's guitar players like Jeff Beck, I got a long way to go. You know? <laughs> I, I, hand on my heart, I do. Yeah. It, it, technically, it's a very... It, listen, anything, any art form is hard to do. You know, it could be painting, it could be sports, it could be, I don't know, cooking, whatever you want. You know, learning the art is very, very difficult. And then once you get the body mechanics in, in your body, then it's the rest of your life trying to, to you know, chase this elusive art form. You know, um, during the pandemic, um, my wife was going to shoot me if I didn't get out of the house um, so I started teaching in the little town that I live in and kind of giving a little bit back to the community and a bunch of kids that come in with guitars. And, you know, I, I told them, don't get frustrated. You know, it, it's going to take you a while just to get your hands to do something that they're not supposed to do. And once they get past that point, it's really rewarding for me to watch them, like, start playing, like, I don't know, some Neil Young song on the guitar or, or maybe a Metallica song or whatever it is, because then they light up. Now, now, okay, now you're a guitar player. Now, depending on how hard you want to work and how long you want to continue on, that'll determine how good you're going to be. But for me, every time I put that thing in my lap, and I've had a guitar in my lap for literally 57 years, okay? Wow. To going back to the Beatles. You know, I'll never get where I want to be, but I'm going to have a lot of fun trying. 
And if I fall a little bit short, I'll be okay. That's amazing. I mean, I think that's actually comforting to so many people who are trying to master the instrument. And 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 fascinating to me that you can remember the awkwardness of learning, given the mm. years that you've spent. To me, I would think that would be just such a faint memory. No, I kind of, I kind of keep it in the back of my mind all the time, just to remind myself that you know, it, a, it's a perishable skill. And, you know, I remember not being able to play things. And, you know, some, it, it's weird because as, as I, I'm rolling into 60 years old, my long-term memory is a lot better than my short-term memory, <laughs> you know. So I remember, you know, my first guitar teacher. I remember playing, like, you know, the Alfred's Basic Book One method. Uh, I remember playing um, uh, Smoke on the Water, the seventh grade talent show. Like, all these little things, you know, like milestones in, in my education. Uh, I remember playing Christmas Eve, Sarajevo, 1224 for the first time with Paul in the studio. Oh, wow. You know? And I remember, you know, there was some things Paul would ask me to play that I'm like, dude, I can't do that. And he's like, yes, you can. Just take a minute and breathe and practice it a couple of times. And he kind of, you know, uh, retaught me, if you want. I don't know if that's proper English. But, like, if you can't do something, that means you, that doesn't mean you can't do it. That just means, okay, it's going to take a minute to get there. Yeah. And he was very instrumental in my growth as a guitar player and as a musician. Wow. And it sounds like you passed <clears throat> on some of that knowledge to these kids who, if not for yeah. the pandemic, wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn from you and saved your marriage at the same time, maybe. Well, it certainly saved me from getting shot by my wife. Yes, <laughs> what you know? um, I, this I, I feel like I'm about to ask you an impossible question. But when you talk about what you learned from Paul O'Neill, is there one thing in particular that stands out um, or a couple things in particular other than that? I mean, you know, I mean, you, you work with someone over over so many years. It's unfair of me to ask this question, but I'm but I'm curious to know what pearls of wisdom from him you carry with you. Well, lots. Okay, um, but if there was, if I had to say one important thing, when we first started recording, uh, he called me up and he asked me to come in the studio to work on this project that he had going on, and he put the faders up to um, what was going to become Christmas Eve, Sarajevo, twelve twenty-four, and I kind of, you know, like when your dog looks at you and goes, "Huh?" Yeah, doesn't really get it. And I said, "You know, dude, what's with the Christmas song?" And he's like, he laughed. And he said, it's not really a Christmas song. It's a soundtrack depicting events that take place on Christmas Eve during the war in Bosnia. And I was like, all right, you got my attention. And he told me uh, about a classical cellist who would go to the town square and with his instrument start playing, you know, Mozart and Chopin and all these beautiful classical songs in protest of the bombing raids. And the hair on my arm stood up because yeah. I was Alice Cooper's musical director in 1989 and 90. And I played in what was Zagreb and Belgrade. And I was in that town square. And I said, dude, just press record. And I immediately started playing the opening to that piece. And at the end of it, he's like, oh, my God, that's exactly what I needed. It, you know, the soundtrack is complete. And I said, listen, but I don't understand. Where, do you, where is the song going to go? This is like a heavy metal or aggressive version of a couple Christmas songs. And he goes, I don't care. I just want to make great art. Oh, wow. And I looked at him. I was like, all right, you have got my attention, my loyalty, and my admiration, you know. Because he goes, if you make great art, maybe it'll catch on, maybe it'll sell, maybe not. If you chase the finance side of it and the success side of it, you're already a day late and a buck short. You know, if you try to keep up what's contemporary on the radio or what's fashionable, you're already six months behind the curve. He said, I want to make a great art form that's going to live forever. And if people get it, awesome. If they don't, at least we did this together. And that has stayed with me since he said that, 20, almost 26 years ago.
That is actually helpful to me in my personal life. I think that's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Is it true the name, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, was inspired by a real-life trip to Siberia? Yeah, yeah, he went. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah, and, you know, when, those, when that name came out of his mouth for the first time, I just went, okay, <laughs> yeah, again. <laughs> Is this going to sell? Is it ever going to be anything? I, you know, I didn't know, but Trans-Siberian Orchestra, it sounded kind of Christmassy and wintry. And yes, that was, you know, based around his, his, he would travel everywhere. You know, he was so smart. He was so well-read. He was so well-traveled and he really an incredible historian as well. So yeah, that's but, uh, from Paul. There's just there's a lot of strength and excitement in that name. You know, like it, when you don't know what it is, the name is intriguing. And then when you do know what it is, you cannot help. You know, it, it sort of associates beautifully together. Yeah. So I am terribly excited you guys are coming to Austin, the Frank Irwin Center. Do we know what date you're going to be here? Uh, yeah, I just had it right in front of me. I beg your pardon. It's going to be Thursday, December 9th. Thursday, December 9th at the Frank Irwin Center. And tickets people can get at TSOtickets.com, if I am not mistaken. Is that right? I believe so. And also just go to www.trans-siberian.com. Okay. I said that right. Is there, is there anything else that you want people to know about the show um, or some of the, we didn't talk about your charity work and yet that's something that goes hand in hand with the TSO. Yeah. Well, listen, again, that's Paul O'Neill, you know, uh, Paul, his family, that's, that's just who they are, you know? I mean, incredibly generous, philanthropic, uh, caring, loving. They want to change the world, you know? And I remember um, going back to when we were recording decades ago, I'd be walking to the studio with Paul. We'd go, be going back to the subway, whatever we were doing. And in New York City, every time I turn around, you know, I look over my shoulder and he was 10 feet behind me, stopping, you know, reaching in his pocket, giving somebody a 10, a 20, a five, whatever he had. You know, and he'd tell me, he goes out, you know, it's not going to change my life at all but it may change that person's day. And if I could change their day, maybe that tomorrow's got a better shot, you know? And that same thought kind of carried through from the moment, well, from the first show we did back in 99. $1 from every ticket purchased from the jump has gone back into the communities. And again, that's Paul and the O'Neill family. I mean, just, I'm proud to be part of something so incredible like that. I can understand that. And he sounds like such an extraordinary person um, and that you were so privileged to have him a part of your life for so long. Yeah, I, will, I have. You know, I will miss him until I take my last breath. But I know that he's with me in some way, shape or form. Uh, he changed so many lives, you know. Um, it was a better world with him in it. Yeah. But it's a better world because of him as well. So, you know, that's yes. kind of life. You know, sometimes, you know, that's the hand you get dealt and we're going to continue on. Uh, he always wanted this to live forever. He told me so many times over the years, he goes, Al, I just want this to live past all of us. I wasn't ready to implement that, but this is what it is. And uh, sometimes, you know, in my room temperature IQ, my definition of heaven is, you know, your work lives forever. Therefore, you live eternally too. You know, and we're going to talk about him for the rest of our lives. And my children will talk and my grandchildren will talk about him. And there you have it, you know. 100%. It's a powerful, powerful legacy. And we are privileged to get to experience it with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra every time they come to town. So December 9th is going to be a very special day at the Frank Irwin Center for everyone here in Austin. Al Petrelli, thank you so much. You are a delight. I could talk to you for another hour. I think it would feel like 15 minutes. It will. And I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. And please be safe, be well, love to the family. And I'll see you in a couple months. 
Thanks so much for listening to Juilliards. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Al Petrelli. And if you did, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you want to hear more from Juliet, listen to Magic 95.5 weekday afternoons. She's on the air from noon to seven, keeping you company while you're at work or on that all too lengthy drive home.